Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Daniel chapter 6 is our text for the morning. The title of the message is The Kind of Politicians and Statesmen a Nation Needs. This is an hour-long message, so you will get the Reader's Digest version, so we will move quickly through our text of Scripture. Joel Belts, in a World Magazine article, said, and I quote, Daniel set the standard for Christians who would hold public office. He was serious about the work of statecraft, but he was even more serious about being known as a servant of God, determining to follow God's precepts no matter the cost. Our society could use a few more political leaders like Daniel. And I could not agree with that assessment anymore. And so what is it that we learn from Daniel chapter 6 that helps us understand that indeed Daniel was the kind of politician and statesman a nation needs. And and let me quickly remind you, he was in a hostile environment. He was in Babylon. Uh, He had served uh, initially under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. He then served under a number of unnamed leaders that are not mentioned in the book of Daniel. And finally, the last Babylonian king, Belshazzar, taken down in chapter 5 by Darius, by Cyrus. So now he has moved from serving under the Babylonians and he is now serving under the Medo-Persians. And what is it about this man that caused him to earn such incredible respect, first from the Babylonians and then the Medo-Persians. And what was it about this man that allowed him to stand strong and stand well for his God in the midst of a context that was increasingly hostile, indeed very hostile to his particular worldview and his way of understanding his God? I have four observations I'll make very quickly. Number one, we need men who honor God and allow him to exalt them. We need in political office men who honor God and allow him to exalt him. That is the first four verses of this text. Look at verse one. It pleased Darius, who I think is also a reference to Cyrus. Darius, probably a dynastic title. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. These are district managers or almost like our governors. Uh, And he did this throughout the entire kingdom. And over the 120 satraps, he put over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might not suffer loss. In other words, government corruption is not a modern invention. It is something that goes back throughout the totality of human history. Too often there are indeed politicians who use government to advance their personal agenda rather than serving the people that they have been elected to office to serve. You see it from the Democrats, you see it from the Republicans, you see it from independents. We have too many people in political office who are using it as a platform for power, for their own prestige, for their own personality, and they have little real concern for those that they should be serving. Daniel was not like that. It says in verse 3, 
This Daniel became distinguished among the other presidents and satraps because he had an excellent spirit. In fact, it says down in verse four, he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. You go back and you see that this was the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. This was the testimony of, uh, of the queen mother, even Belshazzar who didn't want to, had to acknowledge that Daniel was a cut above the others in terms of his integrity, in terms of his honesty, in terms of his character. He was simply a man who stepped into his position and served faithfully and served well and served honestly. This was a king that did not have to fear that Daniel would take advantage of his political office. This was a king who knew that if Daniel was guarding his back in the foxhole, he would be safe because Daniel was a man of integrity serving whomever it was that God placed him under. In fact, this Daniel became distinguished again, verse three, among the other presidents and satraps because this excellent spirit was in him. And so as a result of that, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. In other words, Daniel was indeed so uh, reliable, trustworthy, and also excellent uh, in his service. You see, Daniel understood what we already, uh, or anticipated what we know from Colossians chapter three. Ultimately, our service is unto the Lord. That's why at one time in our nation, and unfortunately it's fallen off in recent years, and that may be more of a commentary on the authenticity of many Christians' confessions and professions, but there was a time when even secular business leaders would look for, and secular businessmen would look for Christians to work in their organization. Why? Because they worked hard, because they were honest, because they were trustworthy, because they were absolutely, completely dependable. Well, there are a couple of things we need to learn about what happens if you happen to be that kind of person. First of all, we all need to learn, it can get lonely when you are at the top. And success can always increase your enemies. And the blessings of the righteous can stir up the jealousy of the wicked. And all three of these things were true when it came to the man Daniel. Verse 4, then the presidents and the satraps, they sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because number one, he was faithful. And number two, no error or fault was found in him. As one man said, Daniel always did what he should and he never did what he should not. Now that's a great statement to be made about any one of us, isn't it? There is a man, there's a woman, there's a leader, there's a servant, he or she always does what they should and they never do what they should not. And Proverbs chapter 20 and verse six reminds us, many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? In other words, Daniel was not a big mouth. Daniel did not shoot off his mouth about how cool he was, how great he was, how smart he was, how wealthy he was, how great he was. Daniel just quietly did his job and earned the respect even of his enemies. We need men who honor God and allow him to exalt them. Number two, we need men who are more interested in pleasing God than they are in pleasing people. That is verses five through 15. 
Interestingly, when you go to the book of Ezekiel in chapter 14, you discover that Ezekiel puts Daniel in the same company as the patriarchs Noah and Job in terms of his righteous life. Chuck Swindoll says Daniel's relationship with the Lord was not crisis oriented. It was a consistent walk with God that people saw daily. In other words, when emergencies or crises presented themselves, Daniel, now this is so crucial for us, Daniel was already prepared to meet them and handle them. His daily communion with God had so shaped his character, he was ready no matter what came in his direction. To make it very practical as we know where we're headed, the decision to go to the lion's den had been settled in Daniel's heart years before the event where he was forced to count the cost. The cost had already been counted years before now. And so for all practical purposes, it really was a very simple decision for Daniel. Well, what led up to this moment? Here we go in verse uh, five. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. In other words, we'll find nothing to accuse him of in terms of his work ethic. He's the best there is. We'll find nothing that we can accuse him of in terms of his faithfulness to Darius. He is the best there is. But you know, he is that, as they will say later, he is that exiled Jew uh, from Israel. Uh, he's a foreigner. He's really not one of us. And you know, his devotion to his God, there is his Achilles heel. There is his place of vulnerability. And so they hatch a plan there in verse six. The three, these presidents and the satraps came by agreement to the king. And they said to him, and they begin with a typical polite introduction in the Near Eastern world. Uh, they said to him, O King Darius, may you live forever. Of course, I always like to remind us that there's only one king who lives forever and his name is not Darius, uh, his name is Jesus. Well, anyway, they begin with this term of polite introduction and then they lie. They just flat out lie in verse seven. All the presence of the kingdom, of the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, they're all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. And here it is, we wanna make you God for a month. That was their deal. We're gonna make you God for a month. We're gonna establish an ordinance and when we need to enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any God or man for 30 days except to you, O king, and here's the first reference to it, they shall be cast into the den of lions. And so they put this, um, policy change before uh, King Darius. And of course they recognize like most who uh, rise to political office, I didn't say all, but most are usually driven by their egos. They're prideful, uh, they're arrogant, they're selfish, they're self-centered. And they were counting on Darius being in that group and they absolutely were successful because vanity is a vice that will make you act like a fool. And he played the fool and played right into their hands. And so they said, establish it according to the law of the Medes and the Persians there in verse eight. And therefore Darius, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. In other words, flattering the king and stroking his ego worked and the trap had been set. 
Well, look at what we read then in verse 10. When Daniel knew the document, by the way, I mentioned back up in verse seven that they lied. You say, how do you know they lied? Daniel didn't agree to this. It says right there in the text, all the presence of the kingdom agreed. Daniel didn't agree. In fact, I'm quite certain Daniel wasn't even consulted. No, Daniel was blindsided. Uh, Daniel stepped into a situation where they laid a political trap for him and he finds out about it after the trap actually is already sprung and set. And so now Daniel's got a dilemma. Uh, Will he be more interested in pleasing man and saving his neck, political expediency, or will he be more interested in honoring and serving his God? Now, let me just say a practical and personal word to you all before I move on you're gonna be faced with a dilemma of that sort uh, in the coming months. Oh, your life's not gonna be on the line. Uh, We're not there yet. We may get there in some of your lifetimes, but you're gonna be faced with a dilemma. Uh, You're gonna be faced with a political quandary. You're gonna be faced with people throwing at you uh, the lesser of two evils argument. And they're gonna throw at you the idea, well, at least this one is better than that one. And in putting those kind of situations before you, and by the way, you're not always faced with an either or situation. Don't let people trap you like that. You've been taught well here in your philosophy classes and ethics classes. And it's not always where you've either got to do this or do that. Many times there's a third option. There's the fourth option. There's the fifth option. Use your brain. Let that thing between your ears actually do something and weigh carefully and consider the question, am I going to be a man pleaser or am I ultimately going to please God even if everybody on all the sides despise what I say and what I think? Uh, Yesterday, one of the presidential uh, candidates, Donald Trump, came after a dear, dear friend of mine and a leader in the SBC, Russell Moore, said that uh, on a tweet, and boy, he is a tweeting machine, I'll tell you that. He, he tweets and tweets and tweets. Well, maybe he's a tweeting machine. No, he's a tweeting machine. And he said that one, Russ did not represent uh, Southern Baptists and evangelicals very well. And that secondly, he was possessed of, a, of an evil heart. Wow, Donald Trump telling someone they're possessed of an evil heart in light of the things he has said about women, the things he has said about immigrants, the things he has said about ethnic minorities. I can keep going, by the way, uh, for a long time. And uh, a Baptist pastor uh, that I know uh, was interviewed by Time Magazine and said, well, that's what happens when you, quote, poke the bear. And I responded and said, I don't think Donald Trump's a bear. I think he's a hypocritical chameleon. That's what I think he is. But You don't have to agree with me, but I want to tell you something. There are people that are pressing me and they're going to press you. They're going to say, well, you know, you can't vote for Hillary, so you've got to vote for, well, that's a false dichotomy. Now, if if under your convictions before the Lord, you feel like you should vote for the Democrat or you should vote for this particular Republican, fine. But I, I beg you, I plead with you first and foremost, ask the question, what will please God? What will please God? I don't need to please you, but I do need to please him. And I need to be able to live before him with a clear conscience, 
not get your approval or anybody else's approval. I get that from Daniel. Daniel in verse 10 knew that the document had been signed. And so he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber opened toward Jerusalem. He always prayed toward Jerusalem. He never lost hope that his people would get to go back to Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God. And this is the phrase I love so very, very much as he had done previously. In other words, he didn't flinch. He didn't blink. He didn't back off. And by the way, he didn't, you know, say, well, you know, here's what I'll do. Instead of praying in the front of the window every day, I'll just back up a little bit and get over into a corner and and I'll still pray three times a day to my God. It'll just be that nobody sees me or even better than that. There's a prayer closet back here and God, God will see my, my heart. And so I'll just go back there and, and that way I'll both please God and I'll also please the King. Well, he knew in this particular instance that to do that would not please God. In fact, he knew in this particular instance to do that would dishonor God. I like what John Piper said. He had done, uh, as he had done previously, so he did again. I I call this daring, defiant, disciplined prayer. Note, Daniel's public praying was not for prideful show, but public testimony. It was a public statement about the glory of God over the glory of Darius. And so Daniel took his stand and of course he immediately was attacked. Verse 11, then these men came by agreement, found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of the lions? And the king answered and said, thing stands fast. According to, and there's that famous phrase again, the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And they answered and said to him, King Daniel, that Jew, one of the exiles from Judea, he pays no attention to you. He's dissing you. He's blowing you off. He pays no attention to you or the injunction that you signed, but makes his petition three times a day implied, of course, to his God. And then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. It's very evident that uh, Darius liked Daniel. He appreciated Daniel. He respected Daniel. He was delighted to have Daniel in his cabinet. And so he was distressed at his own stupidity and tried to find a way to deliver Daniel. It says there at the end of verse 14, he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. But then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, no, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king has established, it can not be changed. And that then lays the foundation, opens the door for our third observation. We need men who trust in God and rest in his providence, verses 16 through 24. We need men who trust in God and indeed who rest in his providence. Look at what it says there in verse 16. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And, and don't miss this because I'm going to let Ligon Duncan help us out here in just a moment. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet 
of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and he spent the night doing what? Fasting. Uh, no diversions. The, the NIV says no entertainment was brought to him. Uh, and sleep fled from him. He could not sleep. So Daniel is taken to the den of lions. He is thrown in to the den of lions. A stone is laid over the opening. It is sealed with the signet of the king and his lords. And the king goes home that night and he can't sleep because he knows that his dear friend is a goner. Lig Duncan in commenting on these verses says, and I quote, of course, this passage bears an uncanny resemblance to Matthew 26, 65 and 66, where we read, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Just as Daniel was sealed in the lion's den, so also Christ was sealed in the tomb. And this was the petty human ruler's way to seal the fate of both of these great servants of the Lord. And in both cases, that human sealing led to greater glory for God when he brought Daniel up out of the pit and he raised Christ up out of the tomb. It is not surprising that the early church saw in Daniel in the lion's den a prefiguring of the resurrection of the Lord. For as Daniel was brought out of a den that had been sealed by the official rings of those in power, so was the Lord Jesus Christ raised from a tomb which had been sealed by those officials with their rings of power as well. And so now we move to verse 19 and don't miss the first phrase. Then at the break of day, then early the next morning. Now you say, you're allegorizing. I'm not allegorizing. I'm just noting the clear typology of what we see here with Daniel and what we will see later with the Lord Jesus at the break of day. The king arose and went in haste to the den of the lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish and he declared to Daniel, oh, Daniel, Servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel speaks for the only time, interestingly, in this sixth chapter, and I did a Danny Aiken paraphrase. Many times I think it's helpful for us to paraphrase scripture. So here's my paraphrase of verses 21 uh, down through uh, verse 23. Good morning, my king. I hope things are going well with you and that you enjoyed a good night's sleep. I did. I slept, slept like a little lamb with your lions as my guest. Indeed, their quiet purring put me right to sleep and their warm bodies and fur kept me from being cold all night. Such sweet, cute little cats. Oh, I don't think he said that because cute cats is an oxymoron. But anyway, I, I think he did thank him for the cats. Oh, also, I had a very special guest show up. My God sent his angel and he shut the lion's mouths. Verse 22. Why, I did not even get a lick from their tongue, not one. And they have not harmed me. No, they did not touch one gray hair on my head. Of course, you should know the reason. I honored my God. Now, I never did anything wrong to you. I put the whole situation in the hands of my God. And this is what he did. I trusted him either way, and I will continue to do so as long as I live. Oh, would you like to come down and join me in the den? Well, he did not come down and join him in the den, but verse 24 does inform us of his response. The king commanded uh, 
And those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, they were brought and they were cast into the den of lions, they, their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all the bones in pieces. Now that's very troubling, isn't it? A little, undistur- a little disturbing, uh, but I really appreciate again, the insights of the wonderful Presbyterian brother, Sinclair Ferguson, who helps me, I think, grasp what exactly is going on here and put things in proper perspective. And so I quote, in a fallen and sinful world, there is a somber side to the salvation of God's people. The deliverance of Eve's seed is always accompanied by the bruising of the head of the serpent, Genesis 3:15. Christ delivers those who were subject to a lifelong fear of death by destroying the one who had the power of death, Hebrews 2:14 and 15. But listen, the dark side to Daniel's deliverance is the judgment that falls on those who had sought to destroy the kingdom of God. They and their entire families, even wives and children, were cast into the den of lions and immediately attacked and devoured. Herodotus informs us that such punishment of entire families was often meted out according to Persian law. It was a terrible end. And then he notes, their gods were unable to deliver them from the lions, whereas Daniel's God had delivered him. The one who was in Daniel was stronger than the one who was in the world. And that brings us to our final point of recognition for the kind of politician and statesman our nation needs. We need men who want God to use them to make himself famous among the nations. We need men who want God to use them to make himself famous among the nations. In verse 25 through 28, Darius ushers, uh, issues forth a decree. Then King Darius wrote to all the, look at the missiological, universalistic language, all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. And here is his decree. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree. Then all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Why? Because he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be uh, to the end. There's a stair-stepping affirmation of the eternality of God's kingdom. Then he moves to talk about God's works. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and he does wonders. He does this both in heaven and on earth. This is the God who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And verse 28 then brings a fitting summation. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius. I don't think the word and is the best translation there. I think since I believe that Cyrus and Darius are the same person and that Darius is a dynastic title, I would translate it this way. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. And as I close, I'll leave a single verse with you, James chapter four and verse 10. It rings true for rulers of this age and it rings true for you and for me. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The New Living Translation says it like this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Daniel chapter six and this very familiar story that does indeed uh, typify the coming uh, death 
and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I thank you that just as you raised Daniel out of the lion's den, you raised your son from the tomb, both alive to show your greatness, your goodness, and your glory. And Father, I also thank you that from Daniel chapter six, I learned a lot about the kind of politicians and statesmen a nation needs and the kind of politicians and statesmen I need to pray that you would raise up and the kind of politicians and statesmen I should be willing to give my vote. And Lord, we don't have to settle for second best or third best. We ultimately, Lord, look to you and therefore we have the best. But Lord, as we live our lives in this fallen, broken, confused and sinful world, I would ask you that you would give us extraordinary wisdom and insight. But then Lord, making it very personal, I would also pray that whatever I am called to do, that I would live a life like Daniel. Not that people would brag about me, but that people would brag about the great God that I serve. This I ask and pray in your strong and saving name, Lord Jesus, amen and amen. Before they close us in a song, I'm going to pray one more time a blessing for the meal. As soon as we're dismissed, as you, I hope, know, there is a picnic out on our grounds, and uh, we're looking forward to a time of fun and food and fellowship. And so before they close us with song, let me pray for our food. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for every provision of life, including the food that has been provided for us. May we take it with joy and thanksgiving, remembering always how blessed we are to have so much when there's so many around the world who have so little. So may we, Lord, be grateful and thankful, never forgetting how privileged and blessed we are. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.